The book of Titus, we have reached the heart of the book of Titus. We're in Titus chapter 2 today, and we'll be looking at verses 6 through 10, studying those. This book is all about God's design for the church, and by the church, I mean the people of God. Last week, we saw that Titus was supposed to teach three groups of people, the older men, the older women, and the younger women. To be specific, Titus was supposed to teach the older women to teach the younger women. Today, we'll study two more groups. Two more groups today, and those are the younger men and servants. And there are some instructions for Titus that are mixed in throughout. Before we read our passage, I have a question. If I told you that in these verses, Paul instructs Titus to be a model and to use makeup, would you believe me? How many of you believe me? It is a little bit of a trick question, and maybe you are afraid. That, that's what we're going to see. I will show you as we go. It's not probably what you're thinking is term, in terms of makeup, but the word is there, and we're going to see both of them. I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to read our passage, and just as I did last week, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 to, to give us the full context of this section that I have broken in half. This is Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. But as for you, speaking to Titus, Speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, as we look to your word again this morning, we're asking for your help. We're asking for your guidance. We're asking for the Holy Spirit to teach us, to encourage us, to convict us where we need it. Father, I ask for the Holy Spirit to empower me to teach your word this morning, that I would be accurate, that I would be clear, and that you would give us ears to hear and minds, wills to do what you show us from this passage this morning. Get yourself glory through that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Those of you who were here last week, this will be just a little bit of review. But the same questions that I asked you to ask yourself last week, I'd like you to ask yourself those again. Are you fulfilling your God-given role in the church? And then, what does your behavior, what do your actions reveal about what you believe? The key word for these 10 verses 
as I see it, is the word doctrine, which is just a fancy word for teaching. So doctrine, and that word appears in verses 1, 7, and 10. And two main points, the same as last week. Our beliefs determine our behavior, and our behavior determines how others respond to our beliefs. It's a little bit of a cycle that way. Our beliefs determine how we act. Our actions determine what people think about what we believe. So going back through those first five verses, but at a much quicker pace than we did last week, but as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper, those that are fitting, those that are appropriate for sound doctrine. We better know what that means. If that's the key idea for this doctrine, what does that mean? Sound doctrine. Sound means healthy, wholesome. Doctrine means teaching. So we're talking about healthy teaching. Healthy teaching, then, causes my behavior to match my belief so that I'll practice what I preach. Paul then goes on to describe different groups within the church, who they should be and what they should do. So this is a little bit of an outline for this section. These 10 verses, again, those of you who were here last week, we talked through this. But Paul starts off in verse 1 talking to Titus. Then he talks to the older men, the older women, the younger women, here we pick it up today with the younger men. Then he talks more to Titus. And then finally talks to the servants. And what is he doing? Paul's saying, Titus, this is what you're supposed to teach. And here are the groups you're supposed to teach. So the first one was the older men in verse 2. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound, healthy, wholesome, in faith, in love, in patience. So we talked about those things. That verse seems to emphasize who the older men are supposed to be. The next verse, verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So again, an emphasis on who they are to be and a little bit of what they're supposed to do. That picks up in verse 4, that they admonish the young women to do what? This is the list for the young women. The older women are going to teach the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands. We covered all that last week. And he said, oh, that was fast. I don't know some of those words. Well, go back and listen to it or watch it. But why? What's the purpose? The first reason Paul gives in these 10 verses for why you're supposed to do this is that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Blasphemed means spoken against. That people would not speak against or think ill of God or his word. That's why you're supposed to do these things. And that brings us to where we're starting today. Verse 6. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. Likewise. We saw that word last week too. Likewise, it's as if Paul's saying, young men, ditto everything that I just said to the other groups. But pay special attention to this, this one thing. What is this one thing? Self-control. When he says, I exhort, it means to urge. It means to encourage. To come alongside to help the way the Holy Spirit does for us. To encourage, to convict. It's the same root word that we have for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos. And what group is he addressing? The young men. And we tried to define some of those age ranges and stages of life last week. So who are the young men? Let's figure this out. We need to know who we're talking to. And in this case, a young man, a male would begin to be considered a man at age 13. 
So from age 13 up, and we talked about 40 to 60, whatever, until that young man is the age that any children he has have grown up and moved out. So this is a a wide age span, isn't it? It's a stage of life from the beginning of manhood until you become an empty nester or would be that age if you are not married or don't have children. So how many, how many descriptions, how many commands are there for the young men? It's right there on the chart. I'm not trying to trick you. How many are there? One. Thank you. There's one. And, and you can make snide remarks. That's all the young men could handle. Whatever you want to say, that's fine. But there's only one. And it's to be sober-minded. This attribute, sober-minded, if you have, I believe the ESV has the same word self-controlled all three times. You'll see it three times in verse 2, verse 5, and here. So multiple groups have been told, be sensible, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Now, I usually look at multiple different translations as I'm studying. And the Amplified Bible often gives extra wording. Synonyms. It kind of incorporates those in the verse. So I'm going to read to you what the Amplified Bible has for this verse. In a similar way, urge the young men to be sensible and self-controlled and to behave wisely, taking life seriously. That pretty much sums it up. That's what we're talking about here. Um, I was looking at Chuck Swindoll's commentary, and I really liked what he wrote. He fleshed this out a little bit for the young men because the command is simply be self-controlled be sober-minded what does that look like here's how he describes it titus help the younger men learn how to apply the brakes apply the brakes to life help them understand how to bridle their tongues and control their tempers help them know how to curb their ambition and to purge themselves of greed Show them how to master their sexual urges and impulses. Teach them to be responsible stewards of money rather than squanderers. Show them the rewards of unselfish leadership and the folly of self-centered pursuits. So if that's what this means to be sober-minded, to be self-controlled, then I suggest you that Titus had pretty good job security. That's a lot to consider, and that's a lot for a young man to consider. Can you think of any young men in the Bible who would fit this description of being self-controlled and sober-minded? Anybody come to your mind? David. Let's take him first. David showed responsibility multiple times, but I'm going to pick one. He showed responsibility when he looked after his flock of sheep and protected them from a lion and bear. So then when he visited his brothers at the battlefront, he took Goliath's threat seriously. He was willing to act on it. He was able to step in and be proactive and do something about it. He took responsibility. That's part of this idea of being sober-minded. Anybody else think of anybody? Daniel. Daniel. Very good. Daniel and his three friends were taken to Babylon as captives. They had access to the finest food and drink that Babylon had to offer, and yet the Bible records that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. He could have lived it up. He could have partied as much as they allowed those, that group of people to party. But no, he denied himself. He showed self-control, restraint. Very good. Anybody else come to your mind? Joseph. 
Y'all are three for three. Joseph became the most important servant in Potiphar's house. There was no one greater except Potiphar. But he exercised self-control, self-restraint, and refused to sin with Potiphar's wife. Here he is, a teenager, and he's off by himself, far from home. Nobody would know. The boss's wife is trying to tempt him to sin. He says, no. I will not do this great sin against whom? Against my God. It was real to him. He was a sober-minded, disciplined young man. I had one more. Anybody else want to offer one? Yes, sir. Job. Very good. I didn't have that down, but Job chapter 1. What does it say about him? This goes wrong, and that goes wrong, and, and everything is falling down around him, literally. And what does it say? That in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's restraint. That's self-control. Very good. Yes. Moses is the other one I had. Good job. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. He was living his best life. It was a great situation for him. But instead of choosing to remain there, enjoying the comforts and the passing pleasures of sin, the way Hebrews puts it, he demonstrated self-control and sober-mindedness. He chose to identify with his own people and suffer affliction with the people of God. That had to have been a hard decision. But he was committed to God, and he denied himself, and he obeyed. That's what we're talking about here. That's sober-minded. That's self-controlled. And thank you all for your participation. That's great. There are others, I'm sure, that we could come up with. Does that sound like young men in our world today? It really doesn't, does it? Unfortunately, not in most cases. In his commentary on Titus, Tim Chester wrote, Our society first extended childhood into the teens. Now it has done the same for our 20s. But here's what I want you to remember, and this applies to all of us, not just the young men. There is no room in the church for living for yourself. And he goes on in that statement. There is no room in the church for living for yourself for two or more decades before beginning to live out the biblical picture of a man. Let's be honest. Last week we were talking about the older people. There's not room in the last 20 years either of your life just to coast. God has designed his church for us to disciple, to pour into one another. Back to the young men. Young man, are you living for yourself? Is there something in your life that's controlling you? If there is, ask God for help. And then ask a more mature man in the faith to help you, to encourage you, to come alongside you. That's God's design for the church. Now there's some overlap in these next verses between Titus and other young men, because Titus was one of the young men. So he's specifically addressing Titus now in verses 6 and 7. And what does he tell him? He tells him to exhort in verse 6 and to exemplify in verse 7. 
Titus was supposed to encourage the younger men, but he was also supposed to be an example to them. So this is the list for Titus. Who is Titus to be? What is Titus supposed to do? Verse 7, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. When it says in all things, that's pretty broad, isn't it? In everything, in everything you do, be a pattern. That in all things, if you, if you look closely, you're going to see it. It comes up again in verse 9 and twice in verse 10. Showing yourself to be a pattern, or if you have the ESV, you have the word model. Other modern translations say example of good works. This is the verse that I mentioned earlier where Paul is telling Titus to be a model. He's supposed to be an example. He's supposed to be characterizing all of these things in all of these areas. Now, several times, Paul described himself in other epistles as an example to follow. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul wrote. In fact, his statement to Titus is very similar to what he wrote in Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.12, a verse you may know. Let no one despise your youth. Don't let people look down on your youth, Timothy. But be an example to the believers in what ways? In word, we'll get to that in a minute. In conduct, we're talking about that now. In love, talked about that last week. In spirit, in faith, talked about that last week. In purity, talked about that last week. We're going to talk about it again today. In all these areas, be an example. Titus is commanded to be a pattern of good works, which is the exact opposite of the false teachers in chapter 1, because they were unfit for any good work in chapter 1, verse 16. So what are these areas in which he's supposed to be a pattern, a model, a model of good works? In doctrine, what did we say doctrine means? It means teaching. Anytime you see the word doctrine, think teaching. Doctrine is teaching, and Paul is saying, show integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility in your teaching. So here are the different subcategories, if you will. Showing integrity. Integrity. To me, that is practice what you preach. That's what he's telling him to do. Live a life that is pure, undefiled, uncorrupted, and let your teaching be the same. Next one, showing reverence. Well, what does that mean? Different translations say dignity, seriousness. This word is different from the word sober that we had last week, but it's a very similar idea in far, as far as the meaning goes. It means that Titus must take serious things seriously. It doesn't mean you can never have any fun, goof off, make jokes. It means that if it's serious, you take it seriously. That's what this is saying. And then some of you don't have the word incorruptibility. It's not in some of the manuscripts, but it's a similar word to integrity. It has the same basic meaning. Showing sound speech. There's that word sound again, too. Sound, healthy, wholesome speech. Paul gave more details about this idea when he wrote to the church at Ephesus. This is Ephesians 4, 29 to 31. 
Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That's pretty specific, isn't it? How many corrupt words should proceed out of our mouth? Zero. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. What does edification mean? Building up. What will build up other people? That it may impart grace to the hearers. Don't speak corrupting words. Speak words that are going to minister grace and build up other people. That's what he's saying. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What's the context? It's saying... Control what you say by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Continuing in verse 31, he gives several sins to put away. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, that's the same word we have in Titus, evil speaking, be put away from you with all malice. Don't let any corrupt words proceed from your mouth. Put away evil speaking. Is that clear? I think that's pretty clear. That's what he wrote to the church at Ephesus. It's very similar to what he's telling Titus, that you would... Through your teaching, show sound speech. Use healthy, wholesome words when you speak. Now, unfortunately, it has become common in recent years, I don't know if you've come across it, but there are some well-known people, men who are leading churches as pastors, who are getting up and preaching sermons, and they'll just sprinkle profanity in. That seems like the opposite of what we just read in Ephesians. And it seems like the opposite of what Paul is writing to Titus right here. So, if he's telling Titus that his lifestyle and his words must be pure and wholesome, I believe that includes his public speaking. I don't think there's any place for me to get up and and use all sorts of inappropriate language, the corrupt speech we were just talking about, Especially not when I'm up in front of you trying to teach you the Word of God. Paul continued, sound speech that cannot be condemned. What he's saying is, Titus, express your teaching with healthy words that are beyond reproach. Why? Why? What's the point? That one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. That's very close to what Paul wrote to the older women. Why should they train the younger women in those areas? So that the word of God may not be blasphemed, spoken against. That was verse 5. Why should Titus speak healthy words when he teaches? So that his enemies will have no credible accusation about him or his teaching. Ultimately, Titus should speak healthy words so that the gospel is believable and winsome. By doing so, he will silence the opposition. They won't have anything to say. In the same way, everyone's work ethic provides a platform for the gospel, and work is the topic for these last two verses in this section. Before we start, let's define terms just a little bit. Let's figure out what we're talking about and how it applies to us. Because verse 9, as you see, begins, exhort bond servants. Now, we talked about bondservants the very first week of this study. Titus 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God. So, there are different groups who would fit this term. There are those that we would think of as slaves, and some of your translations will say slaves throughout this section. 
There are also servants who voluntarily stay with their master after a debt has been paid. And that's what I brought up a few weeks ago, that Paul considered himself a bondservant of God. I am a voluntary servant for life to the God who created me. That's a second definition. And then there's a, even a third one that would be kind of like modern-day employees, that you aren't bound to stay in the home of that person, but, but you are nevertheless a, a servant being paid like an employee for that boss. This section applies to all of those situations, and we're going to apply it. How does it apply to us? Specifically to employment, to employees who have a boss. But some of you don't yet, and I realize that. So by extension, I think we could apply it to any of you who are students, who have teachers or administrators at your school, and frankly, anyone who does any form of work. So that would cover pretty much all of us. Here is that chart. Who servants are to be, what servants are to do. Verse 9 says, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Let's take that apart. Exhort, again, means to urge to teach bondservants to be what? Obedient, or your translation might say submissive to their own masters. Now here's a question for you to think about. Can you be obedient without being submissive? Is it possible to be obedient without being submissive? What do you think? A few of you are saying yes. Okay, I agree, you can. Obedience is an action. Submission is an attitude. And the word Paul used is better translated submissive or literally to be in subjection to. Imagine a toddler whose parents have told him to sit down. In fact, they have forced him to sit down. You can force a child to sit down. You cannot force a child to like it. Some of you have been through this. You understand. That child might be sitting there very defiantly thinking, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. Many of you who are parents have experienced this. You know what I'm talking about. True obedience is right away, all the way, with the right what? Attitude. That's what this means. It means in your place of employment, obey action but also do it submissively with the right attitude. And as he's being submissive, what else happens? To be well-pleasing, look at it again, in all things. There it is. To be well-pleasing in all things. You can't accomplish this if you're doing the bare minimum at your workplace. If you're just doing enough to get by, this is not going to happen. This takes intentionality, attempting to do such a good job that you're a blessing both to your boss and to your coworkers. Why? Why should servants be submissive to their masters and seek to please them? Because serving your boss is really serving God. Where are you getting that, Bob? How about the Bible? Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 22 to 24 is another parallel. We read the Ephesians one in our scripture reading earlier. This is the Colossians one. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. What do those words and phrases mean? It means I'm not doing it to be seen. I'm not doing it to get that raise. That would be okay if I get a raise, but I'm not doing it for that reason. I'm doing it as to the Lord. That's where we're going here. And whatever you do, verse 23 says, do it heartily. Do it with energy. Do it with enthusiasm. Why? As to the Lord and not to men. Why? Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Why? Because you serve the Lord Christ. That could revolutionize the way you perform at work to realize I'm doing it for God. Yes, I have a boss. Yes, I'll get an annual performance review, but I'm doing it for God. That's the attitude that we as believers should have. So that's the why. Why should I do all things to please my earthly boss? Because I'm doing it to please my heavenly boss. I'm doing it for God. But how? How do I do that? Let's talk about how. How can servants be submissive and well-pleasing? Number one, by not answering back, by not being argumentative. Do you know someone who has an excuse for everything? He can tell you all day long why he can't or why he shouldn't have to do whatever you just asked him to do. And the fact is, he probably could have done it by now, but he was too busy telling you why he couldn't do it or why he shouldn't have to do it. Does that describe you? Are you a teachable employee? Or do you have to have the last word and express your opinion, and especially your disagreement about everything? Well, yeah, I'm doing it, but I'm not happy, and I'm going to let everybody know why this is stupid, and we shouldn't have this policy. It's easy to do, isn't it? Second one, not pilfering. Some of you are thinking, what is pilfering? Well, if you have a King James with you, it has, says, not purloining. Is that cleared up for everybody? Not purloining. Goodness. What it means is stealing. Specifically, it's petty theft. It's stealing the little stuff. This is the same word used for Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, where it says they sold a possession and they kept back part of the proceeds. According to David Guzik, this type of offense was so common in the ancient world that sometimes the words servant and thief were used interchangeably. It was assumed that servants would steal from their masters in these small ways. If Paul is telling us not to steal pens and paper clips from work, then it should go without saying that he doesn't want us to steal larger items or embezzle funds. But in addition to small things that we might be tempted to take home with us, what's another way you can steal from your boss? Absolutely, time. Wasting time while you're on the clock. Goofing off, gossiping with other employees, taking longer breaks than you're allowed, surfing the internet, scrolling social media, checking the scores or the stock market, calling or texting on your phone. Not pilfering. Not stealing. Paul's given us two ways not to be submissive and well-pleasing, but now he gives us a positive way. What should we do? We shouldn't do those two things, but we should show all good fidelity. What does fidelity mean? It means faithfulness. 
loyalty, trustworthiness, reliability. Does your boss trust you? When I was working in banking, one of my bosses told me I was the first pastor she had met who wasn't a lazy bum. I don't remember her exact words, but that was the idea. She said that the other pastors who had worked for her were lazy and dishonest, and that the pastors who were her clients were some of the most difficult customers around. That's horrible, folks. It grieved me. I'm sure it grieves you. By God's grace, she thought I was an exception, but that's a horrible testimony. How would your boss describe you? Those of you who are retired, how would your last boss have described you? Hard worker, dependable, loyal. Those are the descriptions here. Or, eh, did okay. I don't think he stole anything. He usually showed up. Christians should be the best employees around. But are we? Are you? Let's get to the reason here. Let's get to why. What's the point of serving your employer with the right actions and the right attitude? That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. This is the third statement that Paul has made like this in this section of the chapter. The first one was back in verse 5, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. That one's a negative. Second one in verse 8 earlier today, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. Then we get to the positive one here in verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. That Greek word for adorn is cosmeo. It is the root of the word cosmetics. So we're talking about makeup. Why do some women wear makeup? To make themselves appear more beautiful, more attractive. But we know in our minds, Paul is not telling Titus to put on some mascara and some lipstick and that kind of thing. That's not what he means. But what he does mean is make the truth attractive. Make the truth attractive. Servants, as you loyally obey your masters without talking back or stealing time or money from them, you will make the truth of the gospel attractive to them. That's what we all should be desiring to do. Whether you're in the workforce or not. Whether you have kids at home or not. Whether you are a kid. Whether you're an adult. Whether you're an older person, a younger person. All these groups we've been talking about. What is the goal? To glorify God. To make his truth look as attractive to the world as possible because it is. It is. Next time, we're going to dig into that idea of the doctrine of God our Savior. That's in verses 11 through 15. But what are our big takeaways from this 10-verse section? We've spent a lot of time last week, some time this week on these 10 verses. A good place to start as you're looking at a section of Scripture, if you're studying it out on your own, see what ideas are repeated, what terms are repeated, what phrases, what overall ideas. And I believe when you do that with this one, what I came up with was sound doctrine. We've talked about that, haven't we? Self-control and submission. 
All of us who name the name of Christ need to live lives characterized by self-control and submission. Self-control and submission. Why does that matter? Because our beliefs, which determine our behavior, must give glory to God and his gospel. We're not supposed to provide ammunition to our opponents by living inconsistent, hypocritical lives. But instead, we're supposed to make the truth attractive to other people. And those are our main points. Our beliefs determine our behavior. What I believe will come out in what I do. Our behavior, then, determines how others respond to our beliefs. Are you a hypocrite? Or are you real? Now, who's this lesson for? Please don't get hung up on, well, I, I'm not a servant anymore. I'm not in this age group. I'm, I'm a man, not a woman, so I know this doesn't apply to me. No, it, pretty much all of it applies to us, some more specifically than others. But rather than get concerned about that, I really liked how one author put it. If you're young, find someone to disciple you. If you're old, find someone to disciple if you're somewhere in between, do both. That's God's design for the church, folks. That we should be discipling others, that we should be being discipled by others. How? Some of you are thinking, fine, Bob, disciple, where do I start? I don't know what to do. Again, let's see what the passage tells us. Be an example, teach the gospel. That's a really good place to start. Live what you desire for the one you're discipling to do. Talk like you want that person to talk. I, I'm looking at some parents in the room too. That's, that's what we should be doing as parents. Our kids are going to do what we do and say what we say much more than they do what we say to do. Now, I've been addressing believers almost exclusively again today, because that's what this passage is about. But if there is anyone here, child or adult, if there is someone online, contact us. We would love to show you from the Scriptures how we can know that we have eternal life, to call on the name of the Lord and to be saved. Believers, specifically young men, how are you doing in the area of self-control? Employees, workers of any age, how are you doing with submitting to and pleasing your authority? Everyone, are you discipling someone or being discipled by someone or both? Are you making the truth attractive? Are you living out the gospel and speaking the gospel to others? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you this morning? This word is alive and powerful and sharp, and it pierces into our innermost being. It shows us. And when I ask this question, I don't mean just, how do you want to be a better person? I mean, how specifically did God say, oh, you need to work on that. Oh, you need to confess that sin. 
The conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific. So if he's convicting your heart about something this morning, obey. Talk to him. Confess sin. Ask for help. He gives grace to the humble. To be practical, to apply this passage today, there may be someone you're realizing, I need to step it up. I I need to begin looking for someone to disciple. Or I need somebody to disciple me. I need help here. I need another more mature believer in my life helping and encouraging me. And I need to be honest with somebody and get some help. If God has shown you one of those things to do today, obey. Do it. Open your eyes. Look up. Look around the room. If I just described to you that you need someone to disciple you or you believe, I need to share what God has, has shown me. Look around. There may be somebody in this room that you need to talk to right after the service and say, hey, I need help or hey, could we get coffee sometime? That's God's design for the church, folks. That we would be discipling and being discipled. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your word is good. And it is helpful to us. But Lord, we need your help to do it, to live it. Lord, there's so much good and practical advice in these verses that apply to our lives as students, as employees, that apply to us in whatever stage of life we may find ourselves, that you have a plan for us. Oh Lord, pour out your grace that we would be obedient, that we would long to be a part of your plan. Lord, for those in this room right now, you have taught them. They've walked with you for years. They have achieved some measure of spiritual maturity. Show them who in this room, who in this church family, who in their neighborhood or their school that they should disciple. Lord, for those who are struggling, they know they need help. They know they need a big brother or big sister in Christ to come along and help. Give them the humility to ask for help and guide them to the right person who will be an encouragement to them. Lord, may may we be doers of your word this week. May we do our work as to you knowing that we serve you. May we be submissive to authority and may we be self-controlled, not because we can muster up the strength ourselves, but because you are good and you will give us the grace to do what you've called us to do. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.